For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The Plague of Locusts, Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. So welcome back now. We're, we're continuing our sequential uh, exposition of the book of Revelation. Uh, we're working section by section, verse by verse, uh, through this wonderful book. And now we have come this evening uh, to the fifth trumpet in this cycle of trumpets, which is the third of seven literary cycles in the book. And we are considering material now in the cycle of trumpets, in this third of seven literary cycles in the book, we're considering material that is essentially parallel to or a recapitulation of that material which we studied in the cycle of the seals. Each of these seven literary cycles now cover the same period of history. They're, they're going over the same material, as it were, from different perspectives. Uh, namely, uh, a perspective from John's visions of the judgments of God poured out during this age. A perspective of the tribulations that are poured out uh, upon the church during the church age. Tribulations meant to refine her faith and purify her faith, to uh, clean away or cleanse away her dross. Uh, that period uh, considered the Great Tribulation, a period which extends from the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ to the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ and the consummation of his, of his kingdom. We're talking about that period of time. And in our consideration of these the cycles that cover that period of the church age, uh, we've referred again and again together to texts like uh, Matthew chapter 24 and the Lord's Olivet Discourse, uh, or Revelation chapter 12, which are uh, typological of the judgments that are being poured out during this age. And with the help of Scripture, we've come to understand what's going on during these cycles. So with the help of texts like that, and there are other texts in the Bible which we'll refer to again and again, but I hope that those texts have been helpful to you. We're going to look at again at Revelation 12 this evening. But with the help of Scripture, we begin to draw conclusions about what's going on during these cycles in the book of Revelation, and it helps us to understand what's being communicated to us. Uh, these cycles, if you think with me now, these cycles essentially represent a period equivalent to Daniel's 70th week, a time during which the church faces tribulation, a time during which God's people face persecution. It's a time during which the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Again, it's a time between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these cycles then, as we go from one cycle to the next, these cycles are not sequential. They're not chronological. These cycles recapitulate. They give us an apocalyptic vision of this one age, as it were, from varying perspectives. And we also know from observing these texts and others that not only the cycles, but the judgments within the cycles themselves, those judgments poured out during these cycles, they're not necessarily chronological either, but rather they are typological. They're typical. They are indicative of the wrath of God that is poured out on unbelieving earth dwellers throughout this period. Now, however, as the Lord himself said, that although these these um, 
judgments being poured out during these cycles themselves are not chronological necessarily or sequential. They do, as we move from cycle to cycle, they do increase in frequency and in severity. We're going to see that tonight in Revelation chapter 9. And they increase in frequency and in severity until they culminate in a chronologically future day at which, the Lord, at which time the Lord Jesus Christ will return uh, in judgment, a future day called the great day of his wrath. Um, a day in which Jesus Christ, at the same time that he comes to judge those who dwell upon the earth, will gather together his elect from the four corners of the earth. So in looking then at the seals and looking at the trumpets, we see the plagues that each of the seals and trumpets then unleash upon the earth. And these plagues, typological, if you will, of plagues that are being poured out throughout the extent of this period of time. In other words, um, what we see is a pattern. And every generation, as it were, sees another iteration, another recapitulation of these patterns. In any generation, we're going to see these judgments of God upon the earth. And we know that to be true, don't we? If we look at history, uh, we see historical accounts of great droughts, great famines, wars, and rumors of wars, pestilence, people being killed by the sword. Every generation, it seems, faces this this repeating pattern of judgment being poured out upon the earth. Those are representative of the judgments of God. That is the wrath of God currently being revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And half the world is just asleep and doesn't acknowledge it. Okay, But those are all the judgments of God. And what are those judgments now during this cycle, during this time period, what are those judgments doing? They're increasing in frequency and in severity. We see that in our own day. They are moving us inexorably and pointing to a final culminating, yet future, chronological occurrence of the great day of his wrath where the Lord Jesus Christ will return in judgment and gather together his elect. It's all moving us. So at the same time that we're, we're recapitulating through these cycles that represent the church age, at the same time, there's this linear progression, if you will, through history that is uh, increasing the severity and increasing the frequency of these judgments as they're being poured out. And we see them again in our own day. Wars, Rumors of wars, murder, and mayhem, drought, famine, hunger, starvation, pestilence, catastrophic disasters, some impacting entire regions of the globe. And we've seen that uh, throughout Scripture, God describing the, the judgments that he himself will pour out on the earth that are representative of his judgments against the wicked. Pestilence being one of those. Beasts, the sword, death, famine, drought, right? Starvation, hunger. All of those are the judgments that we typically see poured out in Scripture. And then what comes then in the wake of those plagues that God pours out in his wrath upon the earth? Death. Death, mourning, lamentation, and woe, misery upon those who dwell upon the earth. From the, from the typological language of AD 70 that characterizes, for example, the Olivet Discourse in the first century to what we see in our own day. To what we see in our own day, we are living through the cycle of the seals. We are living through the blast of the trumpets. And each generation of the church now facing persecution, persecution from without, facing assaults from within, and each generation facing its own iteration or facing its own recapitulation of the pattern. And those, as the Lord says, like birth pains upon a pregnant woman, 
increasing in frequency and severity until the return of the Lord at the birth of a new age. So at this point then, if you think about that and how that fits together, this point in our consideration of the cycle of trumpets, four cycles have now sounded, four trumpets have now sounded, and these trumpets are apocalyptic visions, visions of judgment, God's judgment upon the earth that is representative or typological of the judgments that God pours out during this time, and they are symbolic What we're seeing are representations of the judgments that God pours out on the earth during this time. They represent the judgment of God in its various manifestations. And they do so, as we see these visions or these uh, symbols, they do so using Old Testament images. Old Testament images specifically of God's judgment, particularly now images of those judgments poured out on Egypt, for example, during the time of Israel's exodus. That's why we see similarities between Egypt and Babylon, between Babylon and our own Babylon, the Babylon of our day, right? These things, um, those things at that time were written for our admonition. We have them as examples so that we don't fall by the same example of disobedience, right? We have them, they are typological of those things that occur in our own day. So we're going to see similarities between those things. We live in our own Egypt. We live in our own Babylon, And as these judgments are being poured out, we know, brothers and sisters, that there is an exodus coming for the people of God. We live in our own Babylon. There is an exodus coming, and it's coming at the return of Jesus Christ when he gathers together his elect. And he does this for a reason. The Lord uh, God says to Pharaoh uh, in Exodus chapter 9, he pours out these judgments because they, the Egyptians at that time, those who dwelt on the earth in our time, because they have exalted themselves against his people. They've exalted themselves against his people. They've persecuted his people. There is a persecution of the church going on even now. And what we see a a, a depiction of that, if you think about Revelation um, uh, chapter 7 with me, and the martyrs under the altar crying out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, before you avenge our blood upon those who dwell upon the earth? Right? There's this cry on the part of the martyrs, a cry on the part of God's people for God to execute judgment against the wicked, vindicate his own name, and bring many sons to glory. Uh, God's people are awaiting that occurrence. Uh, and God, in the pouring out of judgments, even now, is essentially communicating that the answer to that prayer is coming. They've exalted themselves against his people, uh, and he uh, pours out judgment upon them because of their pagan idolatry. We see in the blast of the trumpets already, those trumpets, the first three trumpets being uh, poured out or blasted upon the earth in response to the idolatry of these pagan nations. And so God's typological judgments, God's just and righteous judgments bring drought, bring famine, they bring pestilence, they bring the sword, they bring ultimately death. And he makes the unbelieving on the earth, unbelieving earth dwellers to drink wormwood, to drink, as it were, the bitterness and misery of their idolatry and their rebellion. So the judgments of God then represented by the first four trumpets are then followed by a terrifying warning of increased intensity and increased severity in verse 13. Revelation chapter 8, verse 13 I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. God is about to pour out woes of judgment upon the earth. These woes, the Greek word is ouai. Ouai, ouai, ouai. It's a It's a word that communicates misery. It's a word that communicates anguish. 
Here it communicates the horror of these next three judgments that are about to be poured out. And though these cycles recapitulate, we see even in this, there is this linear or progressive increase in the severity of God's judgments over time. More perilous times will come. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. Now with that, we arrive now at the first of these three woes, It's the blast of the fifth trumpet in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now, the first four trumpets targeted the earth particularly, right? The earth, the trees, the green grass was burned up. The next three trumpets now, or these next three woes, target earth dwellers or unbelievers themselves. Notice verse 4, that this is a reference specifically to unbelievers, those who do not bear the mark of God. They, don't, they do not bear the seal of God upon their foreheads. In other words, they are not God's people. These are unbelievers. Later, we're going to see that these who do not bear the seal of God upon their foreheads, these are those who bear the mark of the beast on their foreheads and on their hands. These are not God's people. These are the seed of the serpent. These are unbelievers. With the blast of the fifth trumpet, now this judgment being poured out upon them, we see another star fall from the heaven to the earth. At the blast of the third trumpet, if you remember, we saw a great star fall, this one burning like a torch. The name of that star was Wormwood and caused the water to become bitter and many men died drinking the water. Here, the star is referred to by masculine, by masculine pronoun. Did you notice that? To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. He opened it and smoke rose from the pit. Now again, think with me, These apocalyptic visions contain symbols. These symbols stand for something. These are signs that point us to spiritual reality. So in his vision, symbolically, John sees a star. The star is a symbol. It's a star that was in heaven, and that star in heaven fell to the earth. It's a star that has a personal masculine pronoun. So we need to understand, if we're going to understand the nature of the fifth trumpet, we need to discern the identity of this star. Now, it's apparent that the star refers here to an angel. Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, John says that that there were seven stars, and John says that the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. Stars, they're referring to angels. Job refers to the angels in that way when he references God's creation, uh, his creation of the earth in Job chapter 38, where the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for glory. He's speaking about angels. And who were these stars, the sons of God, who sang at the creation of the earth? The angels that God had created. Even Jesus, uh, we saw that this morning, didn't we? The angel or the messenger or the word of the Lord is called the bright and morning star. The word angel itself meaning messenger. But with respect to the identity of this particular star, this particular angel, we turn again to Revelation chapter 12. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. It's a page or two to the right. In Revelation chapter 12, we just have an enormously helpful vision of John um, 
that helps us to unlock some of the mysteries that we encounter as we're working through the book. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven. Signs point us to something. These signs point us to spiritual realities, okay? A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. The woman, as we've seen in looking at this passage before, represents the people of God. Here, Israel, or even more specifically, you could say Mary herself, is a representative of God's people. If you remember in Joseph's dream, uh, he tells his older 11 brothers, the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, that the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed down to him. Uh, So here, the garland of 12 stars on the head of this woman represents the 12 tribes of Israel. She's representing, at this point, the people of God, identified by that physical nation, Israel. Verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, seven diadems on his heads. We're going to look at that symbolism when we get to Revelation 12. In verse 9, this dragon is identified as Satan. The Bible tells us exactly who he is. Verse 4. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And we know that Satan fell with a third of the angels. This is referring, using the word stars to refer to angels, fallen angels in this case. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child, we know that to be Jesus Christ, was caught up to God and his throne. Now we Mary herself gave birth to Jesus Christ. So if you see that woman with a garland of 12 stars as Mary, it gives you a good indication that's exactly who we're talking about. But it was the, the nation of Israel. God appointed a physical nation through which the Messiah would come. It was a physical lineage descended from Abraham through which the Messiah would come. He was born, you could say, to the people of God. Uh, in this case, to the children of Israel. So the woman then, follow this with me, verse six. The woman fled then, into the wilderness. So upon the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ to heaven, the woman then fled into the wilderness, and we know she fled into the wilderness in the face of great persecution, where, verse 6, she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, if you remember uh, going through Daniel chapter 9 with us in Daniel's 70th week, that 70th week in, broken in two, three and a half years and three and a half years, 1260 days is a reference to the first half of Daniel's 70th week. In other words, from the time that the woman flees into the wilderness under persecution and she's there in the wilderness, that's the church in the wilderness, folks. That's, what we're, that's who we're talking about, right? The people of God flee over all the earth. God nourishes his people through his word, by his spirit. Um, and the people are in the wilderness for a period of 1,260 days. In other words, what is being communicated to us in the use of that language is that this period of time in which the people of God are in their wilderness testing refers to that period of time that Daniel mentions in Daniel chapter 9 in reference to 1,260 days, three and a half years, times, times, and half a time. It's the first half of Daniel's 70th week. Do you follow Make sense? Okay. So he's saying right now in Revelation chapter 12, this is that. This age, the church age, is Daniel's, the first half of Daniel's 70th week. Now, at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ into heaven to receive the kingdom, having been victorious then over Satan at the cross 
and at the dispersion of Jewish Christians, the people of God, fleeing Judea under severe persecution, and that for a period of 1,260 days, referring to the first half of Daniel's 70th week, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is cast out. Look at verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. We know who the dragon is. And the dragon and his angels those fallen stars, they fought. Verse eight, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So this morning, when we were talking about Revelation chapter 12 in our study of Romans, and I made mention to you that the accuser of the brethren who stands before the God, before the throne of God, accusing the brethren day and night, is no longer standing before the throne of God, accusing them day and night, because the Lord Jesus Christ is enthroned at the right hand of the majesty, and that guy has been cast out. Do you see? He's been cast to the earth, and follow along with me here. Um, he's been cast to the earth with great wrath, knowing that he has a short time. He no longer has a place, in other words, in the heavenly courtroom. No longer has, has a place there. And he no longer has the ability to make a case, as it were, in God's courtroom. Jesus Christ has won the victory. The verdict is settled. It is done. Do you see? Verse 10. Then, upon this casting out of the adversary, verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has, have come. The kingdom is a present reality. Do you see? Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have presently come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And he's been cast down by our victorious Christ at the cross. And they, those people who are in the wilderness, that he then goes into the wilderness to persecute, that uh, he um, goes after the seed of the woman, so to speak, they, verse 11, overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. What does that point us to? Well, it points us to persecution, the persecution of God's people, the suffering of God's people under the hand of this persecuting beast, uh, but they're victorious, and they're victorious through the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, not loving their lives even to the point of death. We've seen that in church history, haven't we? Like people who have uh, gone to the stake for their faith. Um, those who've gone before us, who were faithful, who overcame, who persevered, who endured. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. That has direct connection, do you see, to Revelation chapter nine. The devil has come down to you having great wrath. I saw a star fall from heaven, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now, verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. In other words, he persecuted God's people. He persecuted the church. He chased her into the wilderness. Verse 14, but this is, uh, if you compare this to verse six, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. Why is it her place? Because she's there to be a light in the midst of darkness. It's her place because she has been sent there with the message of the gospel. Do you see? 
where in that place she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Where do you see a reference to that period? Daniel. Again, that's a reference to Daniel. And it's the first half of Daniel's 70th week. Do you see? Again, with the language of Scripture, we're given one repeated iteration, if you will, after another, saying this period is that. This period, the church age, the age in which the church is in the wilderness, in which the church is in the world but not of the world, the age in which the church is being persecuted, suffering tribulation at the hands of her persecutors, this age of the church refers to that uh, that was referenced in Daniel, that first half of Daniel's 70th week. This is that, do you see? Times, times, and half a time, and she fled there from the presence of the serpent. All right. In a prophecy concerning this fall, we see this fall, this uh, Satan being cast out of heaven, falling to the earth. Isaiah refers to the same fall, the same fall of this star. And again, in typological terms, the fall in Isaiah chapter 14, you can turn there if you like, in Isaiah 14, this fall refers to the fall of the king of Babylon. But the fall of the king of Babylon is typological of this fall of Satan. We, have our own, we live in our own Babylon today, right? At the end of the age, the, this world system is referred to by that name. It's referred to as Babylon. Babylon is going to fall. The king of Babylon is going to fall, that devil. Um, and Babylon today, under the sway of the wicked one, is referred to typologically, uh, for example, in Isaiah, in speaking of that Babylon. Look at Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer... Son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, this is what Satan uh, said at his fall, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Who are the stars of God? Those are the angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. That mount of the congregation is Har-Mageddon. It's the Mount of Meeting where God, so to speak, meets with the stars. It's at Har-Mageddon that God will cast down his enemies and put them under the feet of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, putting all enemies under his footstool. Um, He says, I'm going to sit on that mount, the Mount of Meeting, I'm going to ascend above the stars of God. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet, Isaiah says, you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Word pit referring to abyss. There's one other reference to this that I think is really helpful, and that's Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, the Lord sends out the 12 to preach the gospel. After the 12, he sends out 70 others also, two by two. He sends them out as lambs among the wolves, as lights into the darkness. And although the gospel will go out and sinners will be saved, the Lord warns them that not everyone's going to gladly receive their word. Uh, Some cities, some people are going to reject them. And the Lord Jesus Christ says here that those who reject this light will be judged according to the light they have rejected. Look at verse 13, Luke 10, verse 13. And notice again the use of uai. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for, for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. See the similarity there between that language and the language used of Satan himself? Right? These are the seeds of the serpent. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Then, verse 17, the 70 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, what are we doing here? We're informing our understanding of this plague that is poured out upon the earth in Revelation chapter 9, and we're putting these texts together in order to understand that. The reason here in Luke 10 that the demons were subject to the disciples in Jesus' name was because Jesus had given them authority over demons in validation of his authority over them. The Lord gave them his authority over the demonic realm, so to speak. They became subject, if you will, to the disciples in Jesus' name. And he's about to demonstrate that they are subject to him at the cross. And at his ascension, Satan will be cast down. What does the casting down of Satan refer to? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ talks about the strong man and the necessity of binding the strong man before you plunder his house. So what's going on here? The strong man is going to be bound. He's going to be bound by the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, cast down, if you will, at the cross. Through the gospel then, Jesus Christ begins to plunder his house, taking out, uh, rescuing his prey, if you will, rescuing uh, the captives, if you will, calling out of the strong man's house, if you will, a people for his own name. He's going to plunder the strong man's house. He alludes to this now in verse 18. Verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What does that sound like? Sounds like the fall of this great star, Revelation chapter 9. Sounds like Satan being cast down after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ into heaven in Revelation chapter 12. Sounds like the fall of Satan in Isaiah chapter 14. Verse 19, behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. What is he referring to? He's referring to demons. They've been given authority to cast out demons. They've just rejoiced that even the demons are subject to them in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's because the Lord Jesus Christ has given them authority to trample on them and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, verse 20, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits, fallen angels, are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Okay, let's put that together then. Back in Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, we see Satan and his demon horde cast to the earth then where he persecutes the church and is himself now a great judgment of God upon those who dwell upon the earth. Look at that with me. In the words of Revelation chapter 12, woe, 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 right? Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. In the language of Revelation chapter nine, a great star has fallen to the earth. A great star fallen from heaven and to him has been given the key to the bottomless pit. The disciples were given keys to the kingdom. 
in Matthew chapter 16, or in Matthew chapter 19, they were able to, to open and shut, to bind and to loose. They were given authority, if you will. Here, Satan is given, is given. It's a divine passive. He's given authority. And he's given authority, this key was given by God, he's given authority to unlock or to exercise authority over the bottomless pit. Satan is the one doing evil, but all that, all that even Satan does is under the sovereign control of our ruling and reigning God. Do you see? Nothing, nothing happens apart from, from God's will. And even though Satan is doing his own will in his own heart and mind, even though Satan has purposed and determined to do evil, even the evil that, does, that Satan does is fulfilling God's will will, God's decrees upon those who dwell upon the earth. Under the sovereign control of our ruling and reigning Messiah King, who's seated upon the throne and executing these divine judgments. Now the bottomless pit is a reference to the abyss. It's a hell that is prepared for the devil and his angels. And when Jesus Christ, for example, is casting out legion uh, from the demoniac, those Demons being cast out of him begged him not to send them into the abyss. If you remember that text. In Romans chapter 10, the righteousness of faith speaks this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. The abyss is that which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 4 God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. It's reference to the same place. So what is it then in Revelation chapter 9 that comes out of this dark realm? Satan and his angels. Satan and his angels. Satan and his demons loosed upon the earth in the judgment of God. The scene is painted in sinister terms, verse 2, Revelation chapter 9, verse 2. Satan, this fallen star, opened the bottomless pit because he had been given the key, given authority over it, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And so the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Do you remember the Lord's words to his disciples about serpents and scorpions? Here they're described as scorpions. They have a sting, if you will. Now the smoke smoke of the pit um, unleashes darkness upon the earth. I think that's, again, that's a reference to the ninth plague and darkness upon the earth, the exodus. And it's a reference, if you will, to spiritual blindness, or deceit. It's such that those who dwell on the earth are enveloped in darkness. And again, that often associated with deception. But not only smoke and darkness, again reminiscent of the ninth plague against Egypt, but also a horde of locust-like demons, reminiscent of the eighth plague against Egypt. And this demonic horde that comes out of the pit comes upon the entire earth. And this demonic horde is given themselves authority. They are commissioned, or they are given permission, as it were, to carry out a task. And the authority given to them is compared to the power that a scorpion has over its prey. It's a devastating authority. And who are the prey of these demons? Verse 4. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green thing, or any tree. In other words, they were commanded not to 
repeat the judgments that were poured out in the blasts of the first three trumpets, but to harm only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Do you see how God is able to reserve for judgment those who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and how he's able to provide, protect, and preserve those who are his? God knows what he's doing, and God is powerful, and God can do this. So unlike locusts then, like locusts, these demons devour everything in their path. That's what a locust does, what a plague or a swarm of locusts does. It devours everything in its path. Unlike real locusts, however, they aren't devouring vegetation. They are devouring unbelieving earth dwellers, those who do not have the seal of God upon their foreheads, stinging them, tormenting them through a powerful toxin. Paul says that the God of this age has blinded their minds. You see the reference to darkness or to spiritual ignorance, spiritual darkness. Those who do not believe, have uh, the God of this age has blinded their minds lest, that is a reference to judgment, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So that, you could say, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should not shine on them. The God of this age has blinded their minds. Paul is referring here to a judicial blindness and that is the judicial blindness that is being poured out on the earth in Revelation chapter 9. They're told not to hurt anything already suffering under the judgments of the first four trumpets, the earth, the grass, or the trees. But now these judgments are to be singularly and particularly directed at unbelievers themselves, only those who do not belong to the Lord. Those in Revelation 7, the church militant on earth, that church arrayed for battle as it were, the pictured uh, as the 144,000, those who were sealed by God, those are those who are protected. Again, the seal on man's hand signifying what he does, the seal on man's forehead signifying how he thinks. Those who belong to the Lord think and act like those who belong to the Lord. We'll see that those who belong to Satan also receive a seal on their hand and on their forehead. And those who are not sealed by God are sealed by Satan. You'll find that in Revelation chapter 14. We don't have time to go there this evening, but we'll look at that text soon. These locusts were not permitted to kill, but rather to torment, verse 5. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Just like Satan was restrained in his assaults on Job, here these demons are not allowed to kill, but rather to torment. And again, a reference to the sovereignty of God. The torment is limited to five months. And again, if you remember the symbolism of this book, in, in all of these circumstances, because this is apocalyptic literature, we're looking at the symbolism of these things. Five months is a symbolic number. Ten, ten is a symbol of completion, a symbol of perfection. So what does five communicate? We're not there yet. Half, if you will. These judgments don't represent a completion or a conclusion. There is far more coming. Those that escape these five months will not escape the, the, the judgments that are coming. Remember a third, a third, a third? We see that referenced here with the torment lasting only five months. The word for torment is fascinating. It refers to the action of a coin inspector. In particular, a coin inspector in the Old Testament, in Old Testament times or in the first century. And the, the job of the coin inspector was to determine uh, if a coin was... Uh, true, uh, if a coin was real. 
And he would test a gold or a silver coin for authenticity uh, by what was called a proving stone. He would take the coin, the gold or silver coin, he would rub it against the proving stone, and if it made a mark on the proving stone, it was a fake. It was a counterfeit. It wasn't real. If the coin made a mark, he knew he was being cheated. Do you see? To torment here, that word for torment means to rub. It's a reference to the same thing, the same process. These trials, these judgments, these torments, if you will, rub against unbelievers. Some of them, as we'll see, rub against believers also. But they're rubbing here against unbelievers. And what, is, what does the rubbing reveal? It reveals who they really are. It reveals whom they belong to, whose they are. And by these judgments, rubbing up against unbelievers, so to speak, these unbelievers sealed on the hand, sealed on the forehead by their master, the one who marked them, Satan, doing what Satan does, thinking how Satan thinks, they prove themselves to the inspector, so to speak, prove themselves through these torments that they belong to Satan. So what do they do? Do they repent? Do they turn from their sin? Do they trust in in Jesus Christ? No. They further blaspheme these judgments, again, causing, provoking them to further blasphemy, further sin. Unbelievers rubbed against the proving stone of affliction and anguish shown to be counterfeit shown to be fakes. Similar trials um, prove the genuineness of believers, don't they? When they're rubbed by suffering, rubbed by trial, tribulation, and affliction, that rubbing proves the believer to be one who is God's alone, and that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How he responds to that rubbing uh, it is an evidence of his genuineness. Verse 6, in those, men, in those days men will seek death, will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. In other words, the judgment of those days will be very severe, very severe. We see evidences of this judgment all around us. If you stop and think about that and meditate on that for a moment. This judgment poured out upon the earth when Satan was cast out of heaven. Satan came to the earth, came down to the earth with great wrath, knowing that his time was short, and Satan has been persecuting the people of God ever since. We see that throughout history. And what do the people of God do? They turn to Jesus Christ in faith. They cling to him. They persevere. They endure through trials and tribulations, knowing knowing that the one who overcomes will receive the crown of life. And what do those who dwell on the earth do? They blaspheme. They sin more and more. They increase their blasphemy against God. Judgment, if you think for a moment with me, judgment distinguishes in this case, distinguishes between those who belong to God and those who belong to the devil. It distinguishes. So brothers and sisters, what are we to do as those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have been sealed by our God, those who have put our faith and our trust in his son? What are we to do in response to the trials and tribulations that we face? What are we to do? How are we to respond to these judgments being poured out upon the earth? We're to be distinguishable. And we're to be distinguishable as those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We're to endure. We're to persevere in faith and in faithfulness to him. We're to be lights that shine in a dark place. We're to be his people. We are to overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. Do you see? That's what we're charged with. The judgment distinguishes. We're to be distinguishable. There are two more woes coming. 
Those will increase in frequency and increase in severity. And again, these are woes that we find uh, being poured out on earth even now. And we're to take encouragement from this, brothers and sisters. Our Lord has told us these things would happen, would come to pass, to bolster our confidence and to uh, cause us or to fuel our faith in him. Let's continue to do that as we live for him. Amen. All right, pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this text. Uh, We know, Lord, that um, Satan prowls this earth seeking whom he may devour. His demons do his bidding, persecuting your people, tormenting those who dwell upon the earth. And I pray, Lord, for the soon return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Having cast him down, Lord, we pray that all of the Lord's enemies would be placed under his footstool, and that we would see his everlasting kingdom finally consummated. And Satan and his angels and those who reject our Lord Jesus Christ cast in a lake which burns with fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. Lord, and you, Lord, ushering in uh, everlasting righteousness. We pray for those things to come to pass. But in the meantime, Lord, during this age, we pray that you would help us to endure, strengthen us for the task that we have at hand. Help us to endure. Help us to preach the gospel. Help us to be lights that shine in a dark place. Help us, Lord, help uh, make it that no one here would be deceived by this smoke and darkness that has enveloped the earth at the coming of Satan and his demons. Help us to uh, persevere in faith and in faithfulness to you until the end. We love you, Lord. We thank you. Thank you for your spirit who dwells us. Strengthen us now as we live for you in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.